Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Welcome to Parent Town. This is Heidi. This is the second podcast we are dedicating to a series on restorative practices. In this episode, I get to talk to Dr. Raj. I'm not somebody who gets starstruck very easily, but interviewing Dr. Raj at my dining room table over coffee was about the coolest conversation I will ever have. I could have chatted his ear off all day, and I'm so excited for listeners to hear him share his wisdom and experiences. Dr. Raj is an applied criminologist with over 20 years of community-based activism as a researcher and educator. Inspired by the resilience of the youth and the men in our prison systems, he trains probation agents community members, and justice personnel on implicit biases and raising consciousness utilizing restorative justice practices. Here is Dr. Raja's story. Thank you so much for joining me and talking to me. If you could give us an idea of what you do. I know you do a million amazing things. Thank you. I am a teacher to begin with, and I am recovering criminologist. At times I after listening and being in the community, whether it's in a prison setting, whether it is in a community, whether it's with brothers and sisters and others who have been subjected and objectified and oppressed by the system, I realized that calling myself a faculty in the Department of the Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice doesn't do justice to the kind of passion that I have. So, and I am a recovering alcoholic and a drug addict, so I'm looking at that from that perspective and saying, wow, I am in recovery. This system should be in recovery. So I often say that, and my colleagues are not sure how to embrace it, (laughs) Uh, but I said, yeah, I'm a recovering criminologist. Uh, I am in recovery. So much work to do. So So in doing that and in defining myself in that way, I get to come into classrooms and and announce to people, you know, this is not about an opinion. My classes are value-based. It has to be anchored in values. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you, say, I'm going to be objective. Uh, Because I think the sense of being objective is not about trying to balance the picture. It is, if I'm being objective, then I'm going to show you how it's not at all an equitable system. Mm-hmm. Let's own that. Mm-hmm. So you may, as a recipient, think that I am being opinionated and I'm giving you one side of the picture. No, I, I'm giving you a picture based on my interactions. And, and as far as scholarship is concerned, I often define myself as a scholar in the trenches, hmm. right? Not defined by ivory tower scholarship, not defined by excellent journals. Uh, you know, I 
my work is defined by the community that I work with, mm -hmm. the people I work with. And mm -hmm. if they say it resonates, then that's scholarship for me. Mm. Tell me about the people you work with. Well, I, traditionally, when you think about academic arenas, you know, most of us are trained to think about research, to think about analysis of data, right? We are so datarized and, mm -hmm. and, and algorithmized on, on a regular basis. Everything is data. Everything is captured in, in, and accounted for in an algorithm, yeah. right? If you don't fit that algorithm, then there's something wrong with you, not with the algorithms. Mm. So I think that as faculty, many that I have interacted with, right, um, tend to stay in those lanes where they get to define their parameters and then engage people within their parameters as opposed to saying, let it flow. Let me just listen and learn, right? It's not that. No, I'm going to set the parameters. One of the, one of the scholars in race relations often say, American democracy is an experiment. And I often... I heard that word, Jonathan Cobb, uh, Professor Jonathan Cobb says, and I'm thinking to myself, right, so it's an experiment. And people invoke that term. You probably have heard it uh, as audience. You, everybody probably have heard this somewhere. Oh, we are an experiment. Mm. But really, if you take to heart that word, then there's, there's two aspects in an experiment, right? There's an experimental group, then there's a control group. The experimental group is often positioned to receive all of the variables that that experiment is trying to account for, see that will make a difference. And the control group is denied all of those variables. In truth, then, then it fits. The model of democracy that we practice here mm -hmm. fits that experiment. Mm -hmm. Some people had access to land free just because you can run fast, right? <laughs> Oklahoma gave mm -hmm. you land, mm -hmm. right? So Homestead Act mm -hmm. uh, and granted. And then others were the control group. You were not given anything and yet expected to succeed. Mm -hmm. And if you succeed, wow, you made it, right? So they become heroes. Mm -hmm. and, and then the many who don't, Say, well, then that's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. So they become the control group and, and and we tend to still leverage that experimental group and the control group. How does that what you just talked about come into practice uh, in reality with yeah. what you see in our education system. You and I were chatting a little earlier. You have a, a, a TED Talk that was very impressive <sighs> through the U, and you talked a lot about the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. I think working education and just being in the world and paying attention, we hear about this. Yeah. I don't necessarily think a lot of us really understand what that means, yeah. how it is unfolding, and how it affects our children. Yes, right. Uh, Marion Edelman kind of introduced us to that whole idea of uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Then Arnie Duncan, who was the um, education secretary for education under the Obama administration, in his departure, in a speech, he made an observation that was really, really keen observation where he said that when he first came 
to the field of understanding community and working in schools. He thought it is the time when our children are out of school that they are in danger of encountering with the justice system and being subjected to the justice system. But then as he looked through the data, he realized that many of our children, especially children of color, right, brown and black children, often are interfacing with the criminal justice system during the time when they are in school, right? So eight to three seem to be more dangerous mm -hmm. for them mm. the rest of the time when they're mm. out of school. Uh, so he said, my God, what is going on in our schools? Right? He brought more light into this idea of like, who is being suspended? Mm -hmm. Who is being ostracized? And as we took a look at that data, today we even have to call it cradle to prison pipeline because we are early childhood education, right? Zero mm -hmm. to three. Mm -hmm. And three-year-old kids are being told they're dangerous. Mm. They, are, they are safety hazard public safety mm. concerns. Mm -hmm. and, and, and many of our teachers are going to the place where they are not trained to do that in their academic training, but when they're in the real world, they're defining our children as being at risk and dangerous. Mm -hmm. and so we're looking at three roles, right? There are states where police officers can handcuff a three-year-old. It, the, I mean, the handcuff is not going to stay. There's, a, there's an interesting picture of a young kid who is handcuffed in the back of the chair, right? Both hands sitting and handcuffed. And the handcuff just slips out of that young man's hand because he's so skinny and so, yeah. so little. little. So this idea of cradle to prison pipeline is so real when you look at how children are being defined in some mm -hmm. states like Minnesota, right? At age 14, you can be class, you can be upgraded to be an adult and you can be sent to an adult prison. So we still have that because mm -hmm. I can define you based mm -hmm. on, the, mm -hmm. on the gravity of your crime as an adult mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. try you as an adult. Thinking about this idea of this education system. Yeah. And the way that it is, you know, not only the school to prison pipeline and what that means and what that looks like. Yeah. It says here, there's a, I just want to read you this real quick. This is from 2006. This was a, a policy statement uh -huh. from the NEA. And they talk about the school to prison pipeline means the policies and practices uh -huh. that are directly and indirectly pushing students of color out of school yeah. and on the pathway to prison, mm -hmm. including but not limited to uh -huh. harsh school discipline policies that mm -hmm. overuse suspension and expulsion, yeah. just yeah. like what you were talking about, increased policing and surveillance that create prison-like environments in schools, yeah. 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 over-reliance on referrals to law enforcement and the juvenile justice system, so an annihilating and punitive high-stakes testing-driven academic environment yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talk about you know, what's happening in our schools. And that's what's happening in our schools. Yeah. That is very much the norm. In your 20-some years of doing this, have you seen an awareness of this? Have you seen yeah. it getting better? Have you seen any kind of moving in the right direction, mm. like on a positive note? 
Yeah, let me back up a sure, little sure, bit. Sure, sure, please right? do, so please do. I think, I, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline, by definition, that, that's clear. But there are people who are struggling to this idea of how, what do you mean by school-to-prison? Because schools don't send people to prison. It is that there's a lot of that concept and construct of implicit and explicit biases that exist within all frameworks, all institutions, until and unless those systems are informed by consciousness, they don't address those implicit biases that exist within the practitioners mm-hmm. in the school. So I think when we, when we think about school-to-prison pipeline or cradle-to-prison pipeline, we have to r- really be nuanced about that understanding and say, you know, what is happening? How are we treating people. If you step back and look at our school systems, you know that many of our school systems have adopted tough love constructs and concepts. Mm-hmm. So you do one mistake, you're going to be suspended. This is, and they have these this grids in schools. I'm like, when did we, gridification has really caught on, right? I mean, this idea, right, that's not even a word. But really, we have grids of how we are going to measure the this public safety threat a young person can be in a school. I understand the need to be conscious of what is happening in our environment, but I don't understand the need for us to become an agency of enforcement when we are supposed to be an agency that was created to educate people towards liberation to liberate their minds. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's happening, right? So, oh, we are tough love. We have these grids. And if they fall under, and some parents are like, oh, that's good. Then I know we are a safe school. No. Is that something know? like that where you would call like a zero tolerance? Oh, yeah, thing? zero tolerance. Okay. So, you know, whatever was introduced in the tough love culture of the 80s uh, under Reagan and Nancy and all those people has sort of bled into schools. Now, schools and criminal justice system pretty much have similar policies when these two are supposed to be like diametrically opposed systems, (laughs) right? Right. And yet, that's why when Marion Edelman and others start to talk about this, it initially they're like, what are you talking about? Hmm. But really, when you sit back and look at, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Artika Tyner says this beautifully. I never heard anyone put it better. She will say, you know, we suspend, right, in 2011 and 2012, when I looked at the data, about 3 million children are suspended. And if you really take that look and ask people, I always joke around with people, I say, you know, hey, do you like to watch football? Men in tight pants running around, so we look good. But but if you look at that football stadium beyond the game, Dr. Artika Taina often say, you can sit every one of those kids in the, all of these football stadiums. Every Sunday when we watch mm-hmm. this game, are we conscious of that? The kids, the number of kids we suspend, we expel about 120,000 kids a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's, it's this idea of tough love that has gone rogue and maintained itself in policies because, oh, this is our discipline policy. And you look at the discipline policy from a restorative lens, you say, wait, 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 they're crying out for, there are a lot of needs. 
Oh, no, no, no. That's behavior. They're looking at the grid in uh, sentencing guidelines. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I looked at the grid and I said, you know, if you look at it from an equity, restorative, trauma-informed lens, this grid is telling me there's a lot of need in our community. Instead of pouring the money, $35,000 to lock one person up a year in the state of Minnesota, uh, sometimes it goes from thirty-five to $60,000, depending on the place. Mm -hmm. But that amount of money, can you imagine dropping that money in mm -hmm. the zip codes mm -mm. where majority of our men and women and others come from? Mm -hmm. Just drop it in those zip codes, right? Wouldn't that It'd be transformative? Transformative. Mm -hmm. Like it will create all these different opportunities and just raise the bar for the community to just be successful and thrive. So this tough love mentality, the biases that we have about communities, all that are variables that will not change if I'm just going to simply say, I'm going to put a cap on, on probation. I'm going to put, uh, we're going to change the sentencing guidelines. We're going to make marijuana available. All of those surface level introductions of policies are not truly policy change that affects the health and the wellness mm -hmm. of the community. It only affects the public safety mm -hmm. sense of it. Can we take a step back? Because when you said about entering that yeah. with a restorative lens, yeah. Yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. What does that look like when teachers and communities and staff and wraparound services yeah. and families yeah. enter with a restorative lens? Interesting question, and I appreciate you asking that, right, in a more nuanced way. What does that look like, right? There isn't, there isn't an ideal picture, mm -hmm. right? Because restorative practices is messy, right? It is just messy. There's a lot of points of references, a lot of people, a lot of issues. It has to come and sit in circles mm -hmm. and really connect in a relational model and not based on the status you are in, whether you are troublemaker, not troublemaker. I was visiting one of the schools in Minneapolis, um, Henry High. It's, a, it's a crazy because I do a lot of visits to prisons. I went to see a colleague of mine who's a social worker in Henry and I was surprised that this whole block is built for special ed kids, right? 50 children in special ed. They're all black. No, there was one white kid. Okay. All black, but one white kid. And it was run like a prison. Mm. They have movements. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what? That, that's what they do in prison. Movement. Like when the bell rings. All the police officers, fully charged, utility belt, stand in one corner to the next corner to the next corner to the next corner. Kids are walking in there with bracelets. We call it in the field, incarceration. We may not use the prisons now, but we are using all kinds of high-tech incarceration, electronic incarceration. The idea is just continuously exploding in different ways that, you know, it's not just enough to think about sentencing guidelines or bail, you know, valuation or absence, you know, ending bails. It, you have to do much more than that, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the Henry High, when they, when they change their movement, 
police officers everywhere. Same thing that happens that when there's a movement, the bell goes up, the movement in Stillwater, in, uh, in Faribault Prison, everybody move and the guards are all standing there. Like as if they are ready for trouble, mm-hmm. right? So it's these mm. whole thing, and then you go to the lunchroom, they sit in bays, and that's exactly what happens in in our prisons. Like they sit in bays, and they're monitored by guards in each bay, and it's just a. I was floored by like how this resembles a prison <sighs> structure. Uh, it's it's a it, for me. Right, as somebody who walks all of these doors mm-hmm. in and out, I'm like, wow, this is super crazy. Hmm. So what would it look like is, I, you know, a lot of it is starting to humanize the process, right? Inviting teachers, administrators, school personnel to be human beings, not science teacher, not a math teacher, Beautiful. You have the capacity to teach math. Fantastic. I love you. Come on in. Mm-hmm. Right? But I want you to touch base with the children as if they are human beings, not as whiz and not good in math. They're human beings. They come from different communities, and especially children of color who are growing up in inner cities are exposed to a lot more trauma than an average person who lives in a suburb. How am I taking that trauma into consideration? How am I building their resilience as I build their math capacity? What does it look like? It looks like a very messy, human, loud, funny, people connecting, people knowing each other, mm-hmm. and everybody is talking to each other, and not a place where everybody walks in their lanes. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of schools mm-hmm. that I work in, without mentioning the names of the school, people don't even talk to each other. Mm. Staff and others, they just walk their lane, mm-hmm. right? And then they have these hierarchies. Oh, there are ministries, there are teachers, and then there are paras, yes. aides, yeah. EAs. And, and they don't talk to each other. And you go there, you do circles with them. They're like, wow, this is the first time I've like sat with you. Mm-hmm. And like, no, I'm a specialist. I'm a speech specialist. I don't, I don't. Talk to you, mm-hmm. right? So we have create, we have taken an entire bureaucratic system, and then take our education system and fit it into the bureaucratic system, and then we are like, what's going on? Yeah, right. Without really going in and saying, okay, get rid of all these bureaucratic system. Let's humanize this process, yes. right? No, we have to be worried about guns, man, in the school. Mm-hmm. Really? Is mm-hmm. that how we're going to start education? We let right education, the way systematic education get in the way of learning. Mm-hmm. Systematic education gets in the way of people's learning. Learning should be joyful. Learning should be about always coming in as an empty vessel and getting filled. When you walk out of there, you're like, yes, I'm filled. Mm-hmm. Come back the next day. Mm-hmm. That passion, that both administrators, oh, I'm a teacher... But I'm learning from my kids. I feel so good. Oh, my God. I can't wait back. Yes. Wait to come back. Yes, yes. it's exhausting. <laughs> Our teachers are amazing. Yes. Right? People who do teaching, who are administrators, who are EAs, TAs, paras, they are beautiful human beings. 
but I don't want that to strip their humanity and their passion. That's restoring. Mm-hmm. Restoring in the school will make a dynamic, right change. Yes. That will be all value anchored. It's not based on just credentials, but value anchored. Yeah. Thank you. I think that that's such a beautiful vision, and you you see that that's where the magic happens mm-hmm. when that can be this adaptive kind of holistic thinking instead of it's like band-aid on like a wound as somebody who doesn't know much about restorative practices who might be listening to this and they maybe they have kids in schools or they live in a neighborhood and they have neighbors who are in schools and they want to know more they want to know more about what this means what can they do what questions can they ask So your question is beautiful, right? Because I am one of those people who struggle with this idea of attending trainings because that's a colonized model yeah. that continues to say, oh, just come for five-hour training, you'll be good. <laughs> Two-hour training, three-hour training, four-day training, you're good. <laughs> I worry that when we couch these things as trainings that you can go and get, we still are using that systematic way, the bureaucratic way of informing each other as opposed to humanizing the process. And you you said this magic happens. I really think it's a miracle. Miracles take time. Magics may be like Harry Potter and the wand. Sure. Boom, 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 (laughs) things happen. But this is a miracle, right? Miracles happens in messy places. And how do we celebrate the miracles that happen in our schools, you know, in pockets or in moments, and then make it into a movement? It takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes investment. It takes a level of consciousness um, that everybody needs to be brought into. It cannot be just like one group of people that are doing it and the other groups of people are like just standing aside mm. and watching it. Mm-hmm. No, there's no time to gaze at our community. There's mm. no time to gaze anymore because your liberation is wound in mine and my liberation is wound in yours. Mm. There is no such thing as you helping me. We are in this together, mm. right? So it's about getting out of that sense, right? I often say, you know, get out of that sense of looking at teaching or being in school, or doing this work as urgent work. We are not putting out fires. We are cultivating scholars. Yes. Oh, I love that, That is not urgency. Yes. It is important. It is value-based work. You cannot tell me I'm putting out fire every day, because then you will be exhausted. Then everything the children do, our scholars do, becomes problematic. And I easily jump on that bandwagon of like, okay, we have to have consequences. Yeah. Right. Where's that grid? Yeah. Right? So it becomes that because you now, as a trained professional, are functioning out of your brainstem, right? In that limbic system, the basic brain, fight, flight, freeze mode. Mm. And when you are there, Man, you are filling your gaps with biases and stereotypes. And all of a sudden, it becomes a, takes a life of its own because you look at the suspension rate, 70 to 80% are kids of color. 
how is that even possible? We have 1% of Native community members after the horrific treatment. And you look at our prison systems, 9% of the population are of Native indigenous community members. How is that even mathematically possible? Mm -hmm. And yet it is our reality in Minnesota. So how do we transform that system is to stop looking at our work as urgency, cultivate community mm-hmm. of learners, mm. right? Not cultivate a community of survivors. Yes. If they're just trying to survive, they're just going to be in that fight, flight, freeze mode, not engaged in the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Let's take neuroscience and help develop a restorative community. Mm. A restoration happens when human beings are able to engage in their emotions and feelings, engage that. And let that emotion and the quotient, right? Emotional quotient and quotient and the IQ, right? The yeah. intelligence quotient come together. And in that fusion, you develop a different sort of energy. And they say they, in the scientific world, they say the new form of energy is a fusion energy, hmm. right? And it's That's what is channeling the energy from our sun. Mm. The fusion energy, mm-hmm. right? Atoms clashing, coming together. That can happen here, right? Restorative practices is about that fusion of emotional intelligence and IQ. And when we are able to couple them together, man, we we are we will be unbeatable. Yeah. People might say you are just way out there. Mm. Truly indigenous wisdom often says it's about our humanity that makes up all that we are, mm. right? If we can celebrate all that we are, man, we are going places, man. Yes. What an incredible mind shift, too. It's not only your mind, it's your spirit, it is your heart. It's all that shift. And the good news is it's not impossible. Yes. The good news is it can happen, and yeah. it happens. I just so appreciate your wisdom and you coming and talking. I feel like I do this podcast because I always like to talk to people because I want to learn because yeah. I'm like, Oh, yeah, I want yeah. to talk to Dr. Raj because I want to hear more about what yeah. he has to say. So it's a selfish podcast, yeah. but I also feel as though this is one of those topics that I just want to spread how important this is and important doesn't seem, seem to do it justice. But if I could close with this really cool phrase that you shared on your yeah. TED talk and it's a Nigerian phrase. Yeah. Can you say what um, that is? Often in some of these communities, they say that don't worry if your children are not listening to you, but worry that they are watching you or watching us. Our children, our community of young scholars are watching to see how we walk this earth. Are we listening? Are we learning from them and with them? And before I lead, I cannot just come here. You know, again, in our bureaucratic uh, colonized societies where we are expected to lead just because you have a position and you have a degree and so on and so forth. Okay, you're the leader. Mm. But... That leader doesn't just come to be one day. He or she or they have to listen, learn, and lead. And and it's important for us to know that our children are watching us. They're taking pictures of us 
on a regular basis, mm -hmm. right? Science tells us. Mm -hmm. They're just snapping pictures, <laughs> filling their yes. short-term, long-term memories. Yes. Uh, they may not, be because their, their prefrontal cortex is still developing. So they're reacting to things based on what the pictures they have. Yes. So how do I understand neuroscience with indigenous wisdom and fuse those together to create a restorative community is where I think the, f the floodgates can open, right? Yes. And there is no achievement gap in Minnesota. There's an opportunity Tuning. gap in Minnesota. I so appreciate that phrase yes. much more. Dr. Raj, it was so wonderful having you sit at my dining room table and chatting with me over some coffee. I just can't thank you enough. <laughs> I love the nectar of the gods. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has meant a lot to me. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for, the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Paratown. Please like us and share the podcast on Facebook with your community. We really appreciate it. You can subscribe, listen, and comment to Parent Town where you listen to all your podcasts. Giving us a rating on iTunes really helps us get on top of the podcast list for the public. If you have an idea for the show, we would love to hear from you. Thank you to Greg Ward at Studio Arcade and to Park States for our theme music. Stay tuned for number three in our restorative practices series coming soon. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Heidi, and this is Parent Town.